All right. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, I'm Craig. Uh, this is my wife, Erica. Um, as Jamie mentioned, uh, Micah and Sarah, who are our lead pastors, are away this weekend. So uh, when the cats are away, the mice will play. I mean, they asked us to speak on their behalf. Um, so we're, today we're continuing our sermon series uh, in the Gospel according to John. Um, and as the bowls read for us this morning, um, they did something a little bit different. And um, that was kind of my request. So uh, as some of you know, I lived in England for a little while, and the church that I was part of there would always have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, uh, a psalm reading, and a gospel reading each Sunday. And some of the best sermons that I listened to when I was there would try and weave all of the different texts together. Um, And it taught me a lot about how to connect different parts of Scripture. So We've introduced the readings here, and during the sermon, we're going to try and tie these different texts together. Uh, We picked texts that weren't necessarily directly related to John 17, but had something to contribute. Um, So I'm going to start off by uh, reading John 17 in its entirety. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me, 
because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Thank you, Craig. Um, so yes, we're looking at John 17 today. And when I read, read through this passage, I kind of was thinking about the context and the emotions involved that, um, that Jesus must have been feeling. And I want you to think for a moment, like if you've ever had an experience where you knew everything was going to change. Maybe you didn't know how it was going to change. Maybe you did know how it was going to change, but you knew that it was something was about to happen. Um, maybe it was a move, you know, from one house to another. Maybe it was a new job. Maybe it was, you know, the birth of a child. There's lots of experiences that we could relate to in life um, that might bring up some similar emotions. Um, one example that Craig and I um, have had, we, um, back in 2015, um, just after we got married, we uh, moved across the country um, and lived in Baltimore for a year. And we didn't know when we moved how long that we were going to be there. So we knew everything was going to be different. Uh, we didn't, we knew one family over there, which was such a blessing because we were able to have a place to stay while we looked for an apartment. But it was, I remember the, the thoughts and, um, everything that we went through as we were packing up and trying to make sure that everything um, was packed into our, we, we rented a, a U-box that they ship across the country and making sure that everything got packed into that before they sent it because they tried to send it early. So that was a whole deal. Um, and more importantly, saying goodbye to people and making sure that, um, you know, we just had had some quality time to spend with people before we left because we didn't know how long we were going to be living across the country. Um, or we didn't even have a, a trip scheduled back at that time because we were on a pretty tight budget. So we hadn't booked a plane ticket or anything. We were just moving across the country. Um, so we see in this text, this this is kind of similar to, to what Jesus is going through. So the last several weeks, we've been going through kind of the last week of, of Jesus, um, as he is being, he's getting ready, um, to be crucified, betrayed, crucified, and then rise again. And so this, the context of this, he's just celebrated the Jewish Passover with, um, his disciples. Um, and this was a, you know, celebration, um, and also a way that the Jewish people had of remembering God's deliverance, um, of Israel from slavery in Egypt, um, and it was this central practice uh, to the Jewish nation. It was a way that they, one of the practices that reminded them of who they were as God's people. And during that Passover meal, like we looked at um, in, in previous weeks, Jesus redefined it around himself um, as, you know, the new um, and renewed people of God. And so, you know, this is kind of the context that uh this passage that we start out with. And if we look at verse one, Jesus says, you know, Father, the hour has come. And if you look at the many passages leading up to this, Jesus is always saying things like, well, my hour has not yet come, or the time has not yet come. And this um, actually in, ver in chapter 16 is the first time that uh, he says, you know, the hour is coming and has now come. And then in verse one, it here says, 
the hour has come. So he knows he's about to be portrayed and crucified. He knows that soon the whole purpose, the whole point of his time on earth um, is going to be made clear to the disciples. Uh, and his response to this, you know, kind of momentous uh, time is to try and put things in order. Um, so he's been spending quality time with his disciples. He's been teaching them um, some of the most important messages to try and make sure they're ready for his departure. Um, and his last act is what we just read through in chapter 17, to pray. And it's kind of, we'll kind of look at three sections. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all believers. Um, and so when we look at this prayer as a whole, we get a sense of the purpose for the church in his prayer. Um, and there's some interesting things. So we'll kind of start with the first section, um, which is verses 1 through 5, where he prays for himself. Um, and it's the smallest part of the prayer. Um, and even with, you know, this, what he says, we can see that it's not a selfish part of the prayer. Um, it's clear as we look at it, um, you know, he wants the Father's will to be done, uh, and he wants the Father to be glorified. Now, we often think about glory in terms of prestige and power, uh, accolades, demonstrations of strength, that sort of thing. Um, and it's interesting to note the Romans had a particular way of doing this. So uh, Rome glorified conquering generals with these massive parades to celebrate their victories. Um, they would involve groups of chained, defeated enemies as part of the procession, and the whole thing would culminate in the public execution of those enemies. So, you know, they, know how to, they knew how to have a good time. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is going to glorify God not by leading a procession of people about to be slaughtered, but by being the sacrifice himself. He's going to be lifted up before all people, not on a victor's podium, but on a cross. And, you know, if that's the God whom we worship, maybe we need to rethink what counts as glorious. Um, and the Father is glorified when his great works are known, when Jesus' work on the cross, as the, the ultimate example, makes the Father's love and sacrifice known to us. Now, one other aside that I want to comment on here. So Jesus here talks about eternal life. Now, if you've grown up in the church, um, you've probably gotten used to hearing the term eternal life in a particular way. Um, and it may be tied with certain preconceptions that are not necessarily biblical. So sometimes the phrase eternal life is equated with going to heaven after you die, or possibly your life in heaven after you die. Um, and this is somewhat misleading and ultimately wrong. And let me explain. So another way to translate the Greek that we often translate as eternal life is the life of the age or life of the age to come. Now, many of the Jews in Jesus' day uh, had kind of the following belief. It's like, we're living in this current age, but when the Messiah comes, he will usher in a new era, the age to come, or God's new age. This new age would be an age of peace and prosperity. Uh, God would be present with his people, and he would protect them. Um, this life would be qualitatively different than the life of the current age in some important ways. Um, there are poetic descriptions of this, the lion lying down with the lamb, beating swords into plowshares. Now, what John is doing is he is, is tugging on all of that imagery and all of that uh, implicit backstory when he talks about eternal life. And what Jesus is saying here is that through him, through Jesus, the life of God's new age is available, at least partially, in the current age through belief in him. 
Yeah, so as we look forward to, you know, the life of the age to come, it also comes here. Um, so that's kind of a summary of the, the first section. So we're going to move ahead to verses 6 through 12, which is the next section where Jesus prays for his disciples. Um, when I read through this section, I <laughs> think about, I'm, I'm definitely a people person. So I like to spend time with people um, and I like to invest in people. Um, I used to be a teacher. Uh, you can talk to me about why I left, but that's a totally different story. Um, but I, at, at the start of each semester or each year, um, there's definitely a sense like of excitement as you get to know your students. Um, and for me, and I imagine that for probably all the parents in this room, if you've ever been given a child, <laughs> and whether that was your own biological child or other um, people's children that you are entrusted with, there's a sense of responsibility, there's a sense of love, um, and you, you know, I, I take a great sense of ownership. Um, I volunteer with the youth group, and it's the same thing there. I love working with our students. We had a great pool party this Wednesday. Um, it's so so much fun to see them enjoying themselves and learning. Um, so when I read through this next section, you can feel that level of investment that Jesus has in his disciples. So he refers to them as the ones you gave me. Um, he says that he's guarded them. Um, he's He's taught them. He's invested in them. Uh, and they believe. And you can feel, I, I feel a sense of joy when, when I read that, um, that, you know, he's probably feeling that, you know, he, he, these ones that he's been given believe that he has been sent by God. Um, and there's two important parts to that, to what they're believing. Both the fact that he was sent by God. So he was the promised one who would save Israel, not just any good teacher. Um, so he was sent. And by whom? He was sent by Israel's God, not just any God, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And which God it is that we believe in really matters um, because it strongly changes how we think and how we act. You know, if we believe, um, if we go, believe in a God who is powerful and cruel, we're going to act very differently versus if we believe in a God who humbled himself and is loving. Yeah. So one of my favorite theologians uh, is N.T. Wright, and he was a chaplain at Oxford uh, for a number of years. And as a chaplain, he would meet with the new students. And sometimes you know, the new students would come and just outright say, like, look, I know you're a chaplain, but I don't believe in God. And his response would be, you know, well, why don't you tell me about the God you don't believe in? I probably don't believe in him either. Um, you know, it's, it's not, you don't, just because somebody says God, it doesn't mean they're referring to, not everybody who says God is referring to the same thing. Let me put it that way. And in our psalm for today, Psalm 89, we get a picture of the kind of God whom we believe in. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He's the God who's enthroned on righteousness and justice. It's the God who's attended by unfailing love and truth. Yeah, that's the God whom we worship, not just any God. And Jesus being sent by this God, um, we see an interesting pattern in, in what he prays for when he prays for these disciples. So in verse 9, he says, my prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me. And I think that's kind of interesting, just because growing up in church, um, as I did, like, 
we spend a lot of time in prayer. We pray for all kinds of things. We pray for, um, you know, for ourselves. And, and also we pray for, like, when we think about trying to make changes in the world, we, we want to pray for that. And I think that that's good. And so I think, but I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus, he doesn't pray directly for the world. He prays for his disciples. So we see this sort of pattern that, you know, God is choosing to work through his disciples um, and later the church. Um, to reach the world. So as Jesus was sent to Israel, he sends the church to the world. Um, and this is what we call the church's mission. So, and for this mission to work, um, the church must have unity. So later in, uh, let's see, verse 11, he says, you know, to protect them, he prays to protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. And this theme of unity, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about today. Uh, but just kind of to introduce the topic here, um, you know, that's, that's an important thing that, that we'll be spending some time on. And um, as we continue uh, into verses 13 through 19, um, the mission of the church that, you know, Jesus is sending them on starts to become clear. So Jesus prays... Um, Again, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. So he's praying for his disciples and future believers. Um, and he intends that we're to remain in the world. Um, not that we should look exactly like the world. Um, so not that we are of or from or belonging to the world, but that we, we are supposed to be here. <laughs> so um, it's an important part of our mission to be able to fil- fulfill our mission we have to be here. Yeah. Christians are aliens in the world, but resident aliens. And there's a subtle important, but important difference between those two. Um, actually, there's a book titled Resident Aliens that's uh, definitely worth reading if you, if you have time. Not in a long book. Um, and I have a certain amount of insight into what it means to be a resident alien because um, I am, in fact, a resident alien here in the United States. Uh, I'm born and raised in, in Canada. Um, and being a resident alien has its challenges. Um, for example, getting used to the imperial system as opposed to the metric system. Like, is an ounce a weight or is it a volume? Apparently it's both and they're not the same thing. Like, just, why would you do that? Um, on, on, a, on a more serious note, um, U.S. election cycles are exhausting. Like, they last for, what, two years? So in, in 2015, Canada had the second longest election in its history, and it was 78 days. You know, I mean, there are never, many other examples that I could go into, but we're a little tight on time, and, and uh, yeah, we won't go into those up here. So... Some of those examples, you know, that's a real-life modern example of, of uh, how challenging it can be. And Craig and I have come up with a number of funny little things that we've realized, like, wait, that's how it is in Canada? Oh, it's not that way here. And so it's been an interesting marital journey uh, to have some of those discussions. Also interesting, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find different things that people say, like... In Canada, they're runners, not tennis shoes. So, you know, things like that. Um, I, I do more running than tennis playing. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, but if we look, this kind of brings us back to that passage we read from Jeremiah. So um, that passage, uh, which I think we could get it on the screen. Um, so the, 
that passage starts out, you know, this is, this is the message that God has for the people, the Jews who are exiled in Babylon. Um, so being in the world but not of it, um, being resident aliens, was not a new concept to the Jewish, Jewish people. That's been their state of life for a very long time. So, um, and it involves, you know, in, in Babylon, there would have been, you know, new situations, new customs to get used to. Also, no autonomy as a nation. You know, they went from being a nation um, to being exiled and a lot of the times in oppression or slavery. Um, so they, there was a lot, you know, we, some of the examples Craig and I went over, you know, uh, they're funny. Um, not quite as serious. Not quite as serious as what the Israel, Israelites had to deal with. Um, probably persecution and hatred, um, generally a sense of not fitting in. They couldn't count on the privileges and rights of a native citizen. Um, and, you know, there was a sense of they live there, but their ultimate loyalties are to um, not, you know, there were, would have been local gods that were worshipped, but their loyalties were not to those gods or those authorities. They were to their god. So this, um, this message, you know, in Jeremiah build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens. You don't do those things. You don't marry and have children if you're not going to be there a while. Um, and so this message was probably a difficult one for them to, to accept at first, um, that they weren't going to just be brought out of exile. But God had, you know, they were sent into exile for, for multiple reasons. One of them being it, it was a punishment because they weren't following um, in obedience to, to what God had told them to do. But also he had a purpose. So um, this, uh, this time that they spent, you know, they were supposed to be, without compromising their nature and identity as God's people, they were supposed to settle down and pray for the peace of the city. So, you know, originally Israel was meant, they were set apart for a purpose, and that purpose was to be a light to the nations. And a lot of the times they didn't do that, um, which I can't really blame them too much because I'm not sure that I would have done much better in their position. Um, but they were to pray for the peace of the city. They were to be a light where they were. Um, so that part of their mission didn't change, regardless of whether they were their own nation or in exile. Um, and they kept their Jewish beliefs alive by ongoing practices and rhythms. Um, they weren't supposed to avoid their neighbors, but they also weren't supposed to become exactly like them. They, they were supposed to be different from the people around them. And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, if anyone remembers your time in middle school, you probably remember some certain pressures to conform. So it was, you know, like that. I've, I've blocked more. it out. I've just blocked it out. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. Some of you are going through it right now. So, um, you know, we can come chat. Um, <laughs> but this, you know, there's lots of pressures to conform. And all of these things continued. So, you know, first it was Babylon. Then it was various other nations that took over. Eventually it was Rome. And that was the nation that was in charge when Jesus came. Um, and also the nation that was in charge for the early church after Jesus had died and was resurrected. And so it was also a hard thing for early Christians. Um, it had so, some pretty high social costs, which could include martyrdom. Um, and kind of fast forward through to today, some Christians around the world, like we, they talked, talked about, about that last week, week yeah. um, in the sermon, um, still face martyrdom. So, yeah, there's yeah. a lot. 
Yeah, I would say that in the United States today, the, the challenge is more seduction rather than oppression. Um, but it's still there. You know, it's the seduction of thinking that being Christian and being American are, they line up exactly without any potential conflicts. Or it's the seduction of thinking that being Christian is identical with taking a particular political stance or party affiliation. Um, it's hard work to go against the flow. Um, and so G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite authors. He's got a really great quote on this. He says, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. You know, we have to, are we alive? Can we go against the stream? Um, it's also easy to be afraid. You know, it's, it, when you're afraid, you lash out in fear and anger. You seek out power or you desperately try to cling on to the power that you have. Don't be afraid is one of the most common commands in the Bible. And as Christians, we can be at peace, or we should be able to be at peace as resident aliens because we're citizens of God's kingdom. The God whom, the God who, as Psalm 89 describes, rules over the heavens and the earth. So Jesus says to his disciples, as he's, as he's praying this prayer, he's praying for them, and he references the word holy a few different times. And so when we think about God's kingdom and being resident aliens in the world, but not of it, another way to describe that is actually holiness, um, which I want to take a moment before I go too far on that uh, and talk about what does holiness mean? Because a lot of the times when we hear that word, it can bring up some negative connotations. Uh, we might think of like, oh, you're just, you know, holier than thou attitude, or you might think of rule keeping, um, or just kind of striving for correct actions without really understanding what's going on. Um, and all of those things, uh, you know, I've, I've seen happen, but they're not really what holiness means. So holiness, um, there's a lot of terms in the Bible actually that kind of have this same definition or come from the same root word in the Greek. Um, and so holy, sanctify, consecrate, um, all of those words uh, mean to be set apart for a purpose. Um, and so we see in verse 7, um, or sorry, excuse me, 17, um, Jesus prays, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So this is, you know, he's, he's wanting them to be set apart for a purpose, and there's, there's some ways that we get there, right? So holiness... Um, it, it, uh, the church is to be set apart to obey God's commands and to seek God's truth, not just for our own good. It is for a purpose. Like Israel, we're meant to do this so we can be a light to the world around us. Um, and we don't just get there by, you know, our own rule keeping or, or, or other things like that. Um, it comes by Jesus' sacrifice that, you know, that enables us to be able to, to obey um, and God's truth which Craig is going to talk a bit more about truth as well. Um, let me just introduce it by saying this is a hard concept, which actually I think was also covered last Sunday. Um, it's a hard concept for modern readers because we, you know, the idea of relative truth is often a lot more popular and, you know, what's true for you and might not be what's true for this other person. Um, so Craig's going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but we need truth, 
Um, if we don't know the truth of who God is and what he's called us to do, so we find that truth in God's word, all of our efforts to try and be holy are probably just going to end up in hypocrisy. Um, so we need to know the purpose. Um, we also, there can't be justice without truth. We have to know God's purpose for humans before we can term, determine what is broken or unjust. Um, so God's truth gives us guidance. Um, and we need to be people who love the truth more uh, than we love power, um, influence, money, um, which is also a difficult thing. And it can be tempting to think that um, what we, it can be very tempting when we think about, you know, we want to make change in the world. We want things to be better. And sometimes it's tempting to think that, well, the way to do that is, well, I just need a bunch of money and I need a bunch of influence so that I can make those changes. But that's not how Jesus did it. <laughs> so uh, we need to love the truth first. If we're making um, choices that are not in line with God's truth in order to try to make change in the world, we're probably not going to affect the kind of change that Jesus wanted us to make. Yeah, there's a big means and ends problem there, which we won't go into because limited time. Um, but you know, when, when the text is talking here about God's word being truth, God's word is a particular historical narrative telling us where we come from, where we are, and where we're going. It's not, the Bible is not just a collection of timeless truths. Um, and this narrative, this particular historical narrative, is what gives a particular shape to Christian holiness. It's not the regular, regularity and sterility of a pattern, you know, black and white squares on the floor, but it's the artistry of a painting. Sanctification, becoming holy, God making us holy, is about making beautiful things, or a be making beautiful things out of each of us and making a beautiful thing out of us together. There's a song we sometimes sing here at the Vine that uh, talks a bit about that. So there's, there's this, this truth question, and there's also a purpose question that Erica kind of alluded to. As you have sent me, Jesus says, so I'm sending this church. And I guess this does come back to the means and ends thing a bit. You know, we're sent to do certain things in a certain way. Um, so there's actually a book called The Jesus Way by Eugene Peterson. Um, and he talks a little bit about this, the idea that it's not just what it is we're trying to do, but we actually need to do things in the way that Jesus would do them. Um, and the way of Jesus is the way of humility, vulnerability, sacrifice. We saw this in our Philippians 2 reading. Um, and that's going to be messy. Jesus doesn't give us step-by-step -step instructions on how to do this. You know, follow these 12 steps and you'll, you know, you're guaranteed to get a result. Uh, he just prays and commands that we do it. And that means that we're going to have to take risks. Notwithstanding the fact that being a resident alien means you're vulnerable. Some Christians think that we should be in charge and that we should have dominion over everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. And there are a number of things that could be said about this, but I think the most important one is that this doesn't look a lot like Jesus. Again, go back to Philippians. That's what the way of Jesus looks like. And we saw that as well in previous sermons here in, in John. You know, Jesus put himself at the mercy of those he came to save. He gave up power to serve. We saw that in the foot washing, for example, a few weeks ago. Um, and one way that I have put this is that Christians should be people who are more willing to suffer an injustice than to commit one. And if we were people like that, I think we'd look 
a lot more like Jesus. So, kind of summarizing some of these ideas, how can the church survive and carry out its mission being in the world, but not of the world? So we talked about holiness being set apart for a purpose. Next, we're going to talk about unity and following that love. So um, as we move to verse 20 through 26, um, the concept of unity um, comes up, and it includes not just, you know, the disciples that Jesus had at that given time, but all the believers yet to come. So that includes us. Um, And he prays uh, specifically that they will be one. Um, So unity, just to introduce this concept, um, it tends to be really hard because it brings up questions of identity. So we often define ourselves um, as a group along lines of differences, like, oh, well, we know who we are because we don't associate with that group over there, and we know we're not them. Um, And Jesus calls us to something more positive than that, rather than defining ourselves as like, oh, I'm not that. Um, which I suppose there are some things that he, we could define ourselves as not, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be hateful, for example, but um, he does call us to positively identify as members of his kingdom. And to be in relationship with Jesus means that we're in relationship with all the other people who are in relationship with Jesus, which is a very diverse family, which is a really great thing. Yeah. And Christian history provides uh, a lot of really unfortunate examples of how difficult that is. Um, I think about a year ago, Mike and I did a sort of joint sermon talking about church history. Um, And I won't try to recap that here, but I'd encourage you to go and listen to it. But um, I think one of the great tragedies of Christian history is that Christians should have killed each other for their respective nations. If your nation is more determinative of your identity and loyalties than your Christianity— then you're saying that the United States or Canada or England or wherever is more powerful and more important than the kingdom of God. If your political affiliation is more determinative of your identity and loyalties than your Christianity, you're saying that the Republican or or Democrat electoral candidate is more powerful and important than Jesus. And there's a biblical word to describe that sort of thing. It's it's idolatry. So trying to be a unified church is a really difficult thing. Um, So why does it matter? Why is it important that we do this? Um, It's more important, oftentimes, you know, we're, we live in a very individualistic culture. Um, So a lot of the times churches tend to focus on, you know, trying to have people be personally devoted to Jesus, which is very important. Um, But if we don't communally come together, Uh, this can create problems for our mission in the world. Um, And there's a quote that Craig found that um, we can put on the screen. Um, And this kind of summarizes uh, some things, which I'll read it in a moment. I almost forgot to say something. Um, So God has always chosen to work through human beings. Um, Not, you know, he works through individuals, but he also works through communities. Uh, And There was first the call of Abraham, which led to the nation of Israel. Um, Then there was, you know, Jesus came as a human himself and built a family of disciples that he sent into the world that has now become the church. Um, So this this quote, actually, Craig, do you want to read it? Go right ahead. Uh, If Jesus' purpose had been to provide for all succeeding generations of mankind a revelation of God, which could be embodied in a series of verbal statements of absolute inerrancy, 
or an infallible code of conduct, he could have left a written deposit. A great deal of subsequent thinking seems to assume that this is what he ought to have done. But it is precisely what he did not do. He chose twelve apostles that they might be with him, and that he might send them forth. As he represents the Father, they are to represent him to the world. So this quote reminds us that, you know, the Bible that we have, um, it was not written, not even the New Testament was not written by Jesus' own hand, right? So he spoke, and eventually members of his, you know, disciples and followers wrote things down. Um, So that's how we get our our Bible. So Jesus' legacy was not directly a book. Eventually we did get that, right? God, God led that, but... Initially, his legacy was a diverse group of people. The disciples were very diverse, um, and they learned his teachings and were sent into the world. So the unity of this group was, the purpose was, it was to be so obvious and unexpected. It was to, you know, contradict what uh, all the um, strife and uh, disunity that you see in the world. And so the unity of this group was supposed to be recognized as something different. Right. And unity and mission, as, as Erica was alluding to, they go together. I'm um, going to bring up one more Leslie Newbigin quote, because he's a great theologian and you should definitely read him. Uh, he says, The church's unity is the sign and the instrument of the salvation which Christ has wrought, and whose end is the summing up of all things in Christ. Insofar as the church is disunited, her life is a direct and public contradiction of the gospel. We cannot be Christ's ambassadors, beseeching everyone to be reconciled to God, except we ourselves be willing to be reconciled one to another in him. I never heard that growing up. kind of wish I had. Um, so we're united. We need to be united if we're going to carry out our mission, but we also need to be united in love. And love is an overarching theme of the gospel according to John, of the letters that John wrote. Um, but of course, that begs the question of what does love look like? Um, lots of people use different, describe love in different ways. Um, and, uh, John, if you want to bring up the next, next quote, um, as Richard Hayes puts it, love covers a multitude of sins in more ways than one. The term has become debased in popular discourse. It has lost its power of discernment, having become a manner, a cover for all manner of vapid self-indulgence. When we as Christians talk about love, we've got a much more specific picture in mind, um, We've got the picture that we get in Philippians 2. Christian love looks like humility. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like the cross. So when I'm thinking about love and unity and what it looks like to try and work that out um, as a church community, um, I'm reminded actually of the time we spent in Baltimore. Um, So Baltimore is a very diverse um, city uh, and has had a, has a very long um, and challenging history of um, racial inequalities. Uh, and in that city, um, the church that we attended was a really great church. Um, and what they had done, um, I think it's a great example of how to be intentional um, in loving each other. So they, when they planted this church, um, they had a black pastor and a white pastor come together and plant this church, which was pretty revolutionary in the city at the time. Um, And they 
strategically chose the location to be a location that was, it was in a poorer neighborhood that was right next to um, an upper class neighborhood, which actually, if you know much about Baltimore and the history of the city and and how um, things got set up, that's that's actually quite common, which you can ask me about that later if you want to. But um, it was just a really amazing example of intentionality. And they everything the church did, like their small groups, they tried to bring together diverse groups of people so that there was an opportunity for racial reconciliation to occur. Um, and that looks different than what the rest of the city was doing. Um, and so... That, I think, is a really great example. Now, was it perfect? No, they were not a perfect church. It is messy when you bring diverse groups of people together and have let them have conversations, especially when there's a lot of hurt um, and a lot of uh, ignorance and other things that you have to overcome. But it was a really great picture um, of an intense, uh, yeah, actually intense wasn't the word I was going for, but that's actually true. Um, intentional, intense, intentional way of living out God's word. Um, so I am really thankful that we had that time there um, while we were in Baltimore to learn uh, more about that and just, just see that example uh, while we were at that church. So um, union with each other. This The other thing that this means um, you know, it means loving each other. Um, it, it means being intentional. But it also means that we actually mirror um, a little bit of theology. So, you know, we talk about the Trinity, which um, is a concept that's a really difficult one to explain, um, but refers to God the Father, um, Jesus, God the Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit, all being members of that same same. Godhead or God. So um, when Jesus says many times in this passage, like uh, example in verse 22, you know, he says, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. So he's talking about the Trinity. He doesn't use that word, but um, he's talking about you know these relationships that uh, he has with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so when we are united as a church, we sort of mirror the unity and the relationship within um, the Trinity, uh, which is a pretty cool thing that, that we can um, kind of model ourselves after our God. Uh, and, you know, we see uh, he talks about, um, Jesus talks about in the passage how, you know, God the Father loved him before the world began and that they had glory together um, before the world began. And so when we are united and set apart for a purpose, uh, we mirror these relationships and we show what it would look like um, when God is in charge. Uh, And it shows forth God's character as well as individuals and as a united community. Um, And when we do that, you know, when we really become the holy united people of God, Jesus's joy is made full in us. Yeah. So on that note, we're going to transition now to Eucharist uh, or communion 